getting ready to start a new year. If I ask you to tell me the 10 most common New Year's resolutions, do you think you could do it? What do you think the first one is? That's the second one. Exercise more, then lose weight are the top two. Third one is get organized. Keep planning on that. It doesn't happen, does it? Learn a new skill or hobby is the fourth. The fifth is live life to the fullest. I'm not sure how that goes with exercise more, but too bad. (laughs) Save more money, spend less money. Quit smoking. Spend more time with family and friends. Travel more. Again, that doesn't go with save more money and spending less money. And then read more. That's a good one to have. Well, I wonder, how many of you would get your New Year's resolutions from the minor prophets? (laughs) Well, let's see if we can this morning. Turn to the book of Haggai. Find Matthew, turn left three books. Does that help you? It's all those pages that are stuck together in your Bible somewhere. It's only two chapters, so it's easy to miss. I'm going to remind you, these are called the minor prophets. And mostly they're written to the nation of Israel, either to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, some other nations are thrown in, but generally to the nation of Israel. And because of that, some people wonder, why should we study these minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament? Number one, aren't they minor? So they're really not important, right? You understand minor just means they're shorter than the major ones. The major ones are the longer ones, the minor, the shorter ones. They have just as important information. In fact, I can give you a number of reasons why you should be studying them. The first is obvious. They're included in Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and you know the rest of the verse. So these books are profitable. You do get to see God's plan for Israel. Even though Israel set aside right now, Israel is not out. They're coming back in God's plan. But thirdly, you see in these books that God's serious about sin. Most of these prophets are dealing with the sins that Israel had. And we tend to look at the sins Israel had and said, well, I'm glad I'm not that bad. Well, don't read the minor prophets. Because you're going to find out most of the sins Israel is judged for are the same sins we're guilty of. And God's serious about not doing those sins. But ultimately, these books of minor prophets are books of hope. And you miss the hope that's in there, that God is faithful and merciful and gracious in spite of sin, or sometimes because of sin. That God always is a God of hope. And so they're good books to read, sometimes difficult, sometimes challenging, but always hopeful. So we're going to look at the book of Haggai this morning. The author is obvious. It's Haggai. The next prophet, next book is Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are thought of together. They both prophesied at the same time. He's the first post-exile prophet. Remember, because of Israel, because of their sins in Judah, Babylon took Israel out for 70 years to the, back to Babylon. And so after 70 years, they were allowed to come back into the land, and their first prophet was going to be Haggai, and then Zechariah were the two. And so this time period is going to be the time of Ezra, chapters 1 to 7. We're going to look a little bit at Ezra this morning to see some of the things that go on. 
And it's a very precisely dated book. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, if you found the book already. In the sixth month of Darius the king, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Verse 15 of the chapter, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year. Chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. So this is a book that's dated as precisely as you can get. We know what's happening and when, historically. And up front, I'm going to give you the theme. The theme Haggai's going to have is this. You're going to see this phrase repeated, consider your ways. If you have a different translation, it says, give careful thought to your ways. And at this time of year, we tend to think about the next year, don't we? What should be changed for the next year? What do we kind of do this year that we don't want to do next year? And so that's why this is a good book to look at, to consider our ways. Let's look at chapter 1. What's the first message that Haggai communicates to the children of Israel back in the land? He encourages them to decide to put God first. Look at the first two verses. You get to sit this morning because we're just reading a few verses at a time. I don't want you to go up and down, up and down. We're going to stay there. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they're back in the land, but they had determined it's not time to rebuild the temple. Now, here's where you see how fast you can go back and forth. Stick something in Haggai and go back to Ezra. It's a few books before the Psalms. And look at Ezra chapter 1, because I want us to see when they were allowed to come back from exile, what was the priority they were supposed to have when they came back, the first groups that came. In Ezra chapter 1, we're reminded that 70 years earlier, God had raised up Cyrus, king of Persia. In verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. Their first priority in coming back was supposed to be rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken down 70 years earlier. So what happened? Look over in chapter 4, verse 1. They start rebuilding the foundation of the temple, and chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 1 says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Jerubbabel, the heads of the father's houses. So the adversaries of Israel that were there hear this. They go to them, and in verse 4, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
And then you have a letter that these leaders sent back to the king of Persia saying, you don't want these Jews rebuilding their city. They're a rebellious people. Give us a decree to stop them. And so in verse 21, the king said, Therefore make a decree these men be made to cease, that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And verse 23, when a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They determined when they got back that there's too many challenges, too many circumstances, too many people opposing them, and so they did not obey God. And you say, wait a minute, the king made an order? The people were against it? Now you're back in Haggai. It's been 15 years since that happened when you're in Haggai. For 15 years, they've determined, we're not going to rebuild the house of God. But they made another choice. Look in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Well, they couldn't build God's house, which was supposed to be their priority, but they could put time in on their own houses, couldn't they? And you're thinking, wait a minute, they had to have a place to live, didn't they? Yeah, but notice that one word in there that the Lord has Haggai throw in. Your paneled houses. These were now their priority. These were their focus, were their houses. It wasn't just living with the basics. It was more. And God's house was no longer a priority. So really he's saying through Haggai to them, who's going to come first? Who's going to come first? I sent you back in the land, told you to rebuild the temple. You didn't do it. You're working on your houses. So who's going to come first? God had been trying to get their attention. Look at verses 5 and 6. For 15 years, he'd been trying to get their attention with circumstances. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Ever feel like your money's just drifting through your pocket? Personal circumstances that God was using, he wasn't blessing their efforts, and they didn't pay attention. Look at verse 9. He used natural disasters to try to get their attention. You looked for much, verse 9, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Look over in chapter 2, verse 15. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? 
When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the product of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Well, that's just Israel. God doesn't do that with us, does he? Has God been trying to get your attention in areas that you're not putting him first? And how long has he been doing it? He'd been doing it for 15 years here, and they still had not gotten the message. Give careful thought to your ways. Consider your ways. So in verse 7, God gives them the solution. Thus says the Lord of hosts, first thing you should do, consider your ways. Think about what you've been doing. Who has had priority in your life, God or you? And after that, he says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. Basically, he's saying, start making my priority first. Go up and get the wood and get started. And then he says that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Do what glorifies me, because when you do that, God comes first. We come second. Now, these look great, don't they? We know what we're supposed to do in putting God first, but it's amazing how much we can rationalize and make excuses why we're not doing it. Isn't it? Jesus gave us a passage about this in Luke chapter 9. With three guys, he says, as they're going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's the first excuse? Well, I put God first, but my expectations aren't being met. Because it reminds us, you put me first, you might not have even a place to live. Would you do that? Or how about the second guy to another? He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. My boy, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? You realize the point behind this question was this. It didn't mean the man's father had just died. The idea was when my situation changes in my family, until my father's dead... Then I'll follow you. When my job situation changes or my personal situation, when those situations change for the better, then I'll put you first. Great excuse. Doesn't work. Or how about the third one? Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, I'll put you first, Lord, but let me just do this one little thing first. It's just one little thing. And then what's that become? Another little thing, and another little thing, and another little thing, and pretty much we just get past it. What excuses are you using in some area of your life that you know God should be first, and you're not doing it? Well, what reaction do the people have here? 
fortunately a good one. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. Great response. They feared the Lord. They respected his word. They immediately obeyed. And Haggai said, just reminded them, you're not on your own in this. Even when you're putting God first, he's with you in this. He helps you in this. Please remember that. But then there's an interesting verse in verse 14. They'd obeyed. They'd feared the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Interesting. They obeyed, and then the Lord stirred them up. What do we want? Make me feel like doing this. When I really feel like doing this. When you stir me up so I really want to do this, then I'll do it. That's not the way it works. You obey and feel the Lord first. You take the steps to put him first, and then you'll find him stirring you up. Interesting, if you stuck something back in Ezra, Ezra 5 tells us the event of how this happened. Haggai preaches the message, they obey And Ezra 5, 1 says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Immediately they obeyed. They got started. They didn't even ask for permission. Because they knew they had to obey God rather than men. And whatever consequences came were going to come. The challenges didn't matter anymore. God mattered. The opposition didn't matter anymore. God mattered. And interesting, in verse 3, Tatanai who was the governor of the province, asked them, who gave you a decree to do this? Who allowed you to build this? And they gave a reply that then Tatanai replies in a letter to King Darius, the king of Persia at that time. And verse 11 of chapter 5 says, this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. And then verse 13, he reminds him in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that's in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this just Bazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that's in Jerusalem. And from that time until now it has been in building and it is not yet finished. 
Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. You've heard of the law of the Medes and the Persians, right? Remember the book of Esther? Where the king is tricked into making a decree that all the Jews should be killed. And Esther says, you need to change this. And he says, can't be changed. And so the kings of the Medes and Persians kept exquisite, the detailed records to make sure they knew what had been decreed. Because once a king decreed it, it couldn't be changed. And so the Jews say, hey, check the records. See if Cyrus made this decree. And in chapter 6, the reply comes from Darius. We checked the records. There was a decree. These guys get to build the temple. But let me ask you a question. They could have done this 15 years earlier. They could have made the same reply to the king 15 years earlier. They'd have had the temple for 15 more years. How much blessing they miss out on because they didn't put God first. How much blessing are we missing out on because we don't put God first? What's the first encouragement? You want a resolution? Decide to put God first. Well, let's go to the second one, chapter 2. Second encouragement Haggai is going to give is do the work God's called you to do. Verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What's he telling them to do? While you're building this, compare the temple you're building to Solomon's temple. Remember Solomon's temple? Designed by David, built by Solomon, unbelievable opulence in that place. All destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and now they're building something that is a sad image of that temple. There's no gold, there's no silver, there's nothing precious in it. It's just a building. Interesting, in Ezra 3, when they laid the foundation, they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Some did remember, and this was a sad comparison. So surely this couldn't be what God wants them to do, is it? Build this building that's a sad comparison of the past? Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. But this isn't as good as the past, is it? It's amazing we have such selective memories about the past. It's always so great, isn't it? 
And the past is always better than the present. And God worked more in the past with things than he does in what we're working on in the present. Really? Wherever God has you, whatever God has you in, that's what he wants you to work on. That's what he tells them here. Be strong and work. I'm still with you. Was God still working even though they couldn't see what he was doing? It didn't look like Solomon's temple? Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. We don't see God working here the way he did in the past, do we? Wrong. Same God, just working differently. Do the work God calls you to do. Get involved doing things that God wants you to do. It doesn't matter what the past was. What are you doing now? Interesting, in verse 7 here, there's a vision of a temple. He says, I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I'll give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Some of you have commentators of their Bible that say, that's now talking about the millennial temple. I don't think so. Because he uses the phrase, in this house, I'll fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house should be greater. In this place I will give peace. But this doesn't look like a great temple. Well, in 500 years, Herod will redo this temple and expand it. And who do you think will walk in this temple? Jesus Christ. And when he walks in that temple, the glory will be greater than Solomon's temple. And in this place, the Prince of Peace will walk to give peace. See, we don't understand what we're doing now, what the effect's going to be in the future. Only God understands. Don't worry about that. That's why it says in Isaiah 55, my, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. We have no idea how God will use what we're doing now. Just work. Let God take care of what happens afterwards. Do the work God's called you to do. His third message has to do with holiness. Chapter, verse 10 of chapter 2. And a couple of interesting questions are asked first. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Is holiness transferable from what we do or what we contact? The answer is no. Am I more holy because I'm reading from what's called the Holy Bible? No. Are you more holy because you came to church this morning? Or threw money in your offering plate? Are you going to serve in some area after this? That makes you more holy, doesn't it? Being in a Christian family, doesn't that make you more holy? No. And in this case, they're building God's holy temple. Did that make them more holy? And the reminder is, nah, you don't get holiness by contact with individuals or by doing spiritual things. That doesn't make you holy. Then a second question is asked. Verse 13. 
Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. How do they get defiled or unclean? Contact with unholy, sinful things does defile us. It does affect us spiritually. It does kind of rub off on us. It is different than holiness. Sin causes us problems. And in fact, here in verse 14, he reminds them, so it is with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. They had sins they were not taken care of, and so it affected everything they did, just like a contagious disease. They were God's holy people. God made them his holy people. And that their sin was causing a problem. Now we have to ask ourselves this question this morning. How do we get holy? Do I get holy from coming to church? No. We can only get holiness through Jesus Christ, can't we? By accepting him as our Savior, his holiness gets transferred to us. Hebrews 10, by his will we have been made holy through the offering the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are made holy. I get all the holiness I'm going to get through Christ. It's right there. But if that's true, then why does he tell verses like 1 Peter 1, but as he has called you as holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you should be holy for I am holy. Or Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I thought I had holiness through Christ. Why is he telling me I have to pursue holiness? Because if I pursue holiness, I'll work at not having contact with that which causes me to be defiled. It doesn't affect my positional holiness what it affects is what people see of my holiness because I'm supposed to be demonstrating in practice what I am in person. And sin causes a problem with that. When he says demonstrate holiness, what he's saying is what sin is in your life that you need to repent of and stop? Because by giving into sin, you're not demonstrating the holiness you have in Christ. Israel was made holy by God. They were his holy nation, but they didn't look like it from what they did, did they? 2 Corinthians 6 says, We're the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I'll live in them, we'll walk among them, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. There's our holiness. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I'll welcome you, and I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the all-powerful Lord. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that could defile the body and the spirit, and thus accomplish holiness out of reverence for God. If you're listening, what sin has the Holy Spirit brought to your mind this morning? That's defiling you. You need to demonstrate holiness with God's help. In all these things, God's with us to help us accomplish these, isn't he? Interesting, in verse 15, he tells them to make a resolution. Theirs is this, verse 15, Now then, consider from this day onward. 
In fact, he's talking about a specific day, verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, make a decision today to stop sinning in some area you know you shouldn't be doing. No excuses. Do it today. And God's resolution is the end of verse 19. But from this day on, he says, I'll bless you. But this has been a few months after they started rebuilding the temple. And the reminder there is, just because you make a decision today, don't expect God to immediately turn things around where you get everything your way. This is not give to get. That's why he says, since the 24th day, verse 18, that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, if you make the choice to deal with your sin, you'll experience the blessings that I provide, the blessings of obedience. But this is not give to get. This is give up to put God where he should be. Will you work at demonstrating holiness in the next year? God's holiness, not ours. Well, what if we don't? What if we decide not to demonstrate holiness? What if we aren't perfect next year? That we fall below God's standards. Will God stop fulfilling his promises? Now, we know there are consequences. We had consequences in here. He'd been trying to get their attention for 15 years with consequences. But will God ever stop fulfilling his word? And that's our fourth message, starting with verse 20. The encouragement is to depend on God's word. This message is really just as Zerubbabel the governor. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 20, in the Minor Prophets, when you see that phrase, on that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the Lord's return. When God, Christ, comes back to judge the earth, this is what's going to happen on that day. And God's reminder here is this. On that day, Zerubbabel, you will be my signet ring. Well, what's he talking about there? What did God always promise? That somebody from David's line would always be on the throne. And Zerubbabel's just a governor here, but he's of David's line. The Persian king has put somebody from David's line in charge, even here. Will anything that we do change God's promises? Stop God from keeping his word? Nah, it doesn't depend on us. Does God want us not to sin? Yeah, but it doesn't depend on us. What's we're told in Timothy? If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What about God's word do you need to start trusting, depending on, rather than depending on yourself? Well, how about that? You want four good New Year's resolutions from a minor prophet? Decide to put God first in something that you haven't been. 
Start doing some work that God wants you to do. Start getting rid of sin and showing who you are in Christ. And start depending more on God's Word. Consider your ways. Let's pray. Father, you are so clear to us in your Word. You speak truth, you speak it directly. And if we've all been listening this morning, your spirit has clearly laid out something for us that we need to work on. Help us not to make excuses. We don't have to wait till January 1st. We can start putting things into practice today. We ask your help in doing that. We ask you to keep trying to get our attention in areas that we are being remiss in, that we're ignoring you, because we want to do that which pleases you. Amen.